1: Hello! This episode is a rerun. We'll be back with new interviews at the end of the month. Hello listeners, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. The comedian, Peep Show star and Observer columnist David Mitchell is our guest this week. Hannah McInnes caught up with him a few weeks back for a Friday night live stream.
0: Hello everyone, I'm delighted to welcome you on behalf of the How To Academy and so pleased we can all come together in this way thanks to the wonders of Zoom, though I suspect that might be the first and final time in the next hour or so that anything relating to online technology might be deemed in any way wonderful given that our guest this evening, thinks that the internet and its smartphone delivery system are, and I'm quoting him, more disastrous a human invention than nuclear weapons. But we'll talk about that more later. And I should say that while most of our How To Academy talks look at what's wrong with the world and then invariably make us all feel a bit soothed by the belief that there's something we can do about it and things will get better, if you're looking for that and you want to hold on to your optimism or feel that things can and only will get better, you might have signed in this evening to the wrong talk, because our guest in his book, I quote, it's really depressing, basically. Things getting inexorably worse, even if they're not by any historical measure that bad, is liable to make existence itself feel a bit pointless. And it's all effing terrible, etc., etc." I should add that it was in fact written before the coronavirus epidemic hits, So we will also talk a little bit about whether that opinion is revised or how uh, that has gone on. But don't worry, please stay with us because actually if it's going to go wrong, we might as well laugh about it and find humour in our fate. And there is, there are very few people who can help us better with that than our guest this evening, who needs no introduction. He's, of course, a comedian, an actor, a writer, star, uh, and one half of Peep Show and that Michelin Webb look and much more. Many will have witnessed his expertise in all things lying from The Unbelievable Truth, which he chairs, and Would I Lie to You, on which he is team captain. He writes for The Observer, and it's these columns on everything from scampi and salad cream to Brexit and bell ringing that fill the pages of his recent book, which is very beautiful orange thing I hold in my hands. Dishonesty is the second best policy and other rules to live by, which is of course the inspiration for our event this evening and is now out in paperback, which I know David you're delighted about. I've heard you say it's cheaper, it's flimsier, it's more convenient and less annoying to hold, but the words are still the same. And form aside, it's been rightly praised by all the people you would want it to be praised by, and in what I think is an actually extraordinary turn of events, both the Daily Mail and the Guardian are on the back, deeming it very brilliant and very funny. So if they can agree on something, uh, I think that is a positive um, achievement in itself. So thank you so much for joining us this evening.
2: Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm sorry I to sound so depressing. And as you said, it was before this pandemic. I didn't know how lucky we were. <laughs> I, I, I take it all back. Everything was fine. It was just a tiny few issues in paradise.
0: Well, you end the book in the conclusions saying, this book is your attempt to harness Sod's law in defence of civilization and progress. If I publish a book saying that Britain is going to get worse and worse, I bet it won't. I bet it'll all suddenly improve. It's bound to. That would be typical. That's Sod's law. So how's that panning out, do you think?
2: I would say that has not come off, that bet. Uh, yes, I would say if this is the response to my pessimistic predictions... Uh, that, that you know, they haven't. I, mean, I didn't predict uh, a global pandemic, though. I just I just thought I was just moaning about all the problems we had last year and about, you know, about uh, and, and, you know, also, I you know, I like history. So I'm aware that uh, civilizations go down as well as up. Some of the most sort of fascinating bits of history are the long centuries when the Ottoman Empire or the Austro-Hungarian Empire are sort of carrying on. but getting slightly worse and everyone knows they're, they're toast in the long term, but it really could be a few more centuries. And, you know, you sort of wonder Britain's had a pretty good run as a country. We, you know, we've been globally successful and, and then OK. And then we have had a functioning welfare state and a rising average age of death and all that kind of thing that you, you sort of hope for. But at some point, history dictates that things will start getting worse, and hopefully they'll start getting worse very slowly. And I was just speculating in the book that maybe in the last few years, there's been a lot of talk about tipping points, but this is not a viral tipping point. This will be the civilizational tipping point for Britain when it's just, oh yeah, it was was getting a bit better then, still getting a bit better, and then, oh no, no, now we're on the slide, may it be a shallow slide and a soft landing. And I think genuinely that isn't, that's not the end of the world. The end of the world might happen because of climate change, who knows? But that is not the end of the world. But it's just, it is depressing. Uh, It's depressing to have been around at that point, if indeed we have been. (laughs)
0: But <laughs> the book obviously was finished, as I say, before the virus. Yes. And many authors who've written books like yours, which are sort of a pining on the state of the world, have gone back and written appendixes and epilogues or footnotes, just you know, having a little look back at things. And given your <laughs> <Swats>. book, what <laughs> were you tempted to add a little sort of addendum of thoughts of the past months? And if so, what would it say? Why Why didn't you?
2: Well, I I think I, I mean I I must say I have found the experience of the lockdown and the coronavirus not conducive to creativity um, I know some people have done amazing things they've learned languages they've learned musical instruments they've written novels what I've done is sort of sat and kind of worried and refreshed the BBC News website again and again and again in a hope of some glimmer of comfort um, as we all know the news media are not uh, remunerated by comforting people uh, what they need is our continued alarm. And I was feeding that beast uh, with my refreshing the web page rather than achieving anything. But also, I sort of feel this book, it came from a moment in time. It came from five years of columns I'd written. I chose the ones I liked most because I thought I'd had a point or it was funny or whatever. I chose them. I chose them last year after a period of years that had started basically around the time of the 2015 election. Uh, which already felt quite a tempestuous period. But as I say, now feels you know, comparatively stable. And I there was nothing I could say to recontextualize it into what happened this year, because what's happened this year is very different from uh, the crises we were facing before. It's also something which, whatever mistakes various governments have made, it's fundamentally no one's fault. This is just just a really big, bad thing that happened to us. And, um, you know, that I think that's one of the things we find hardest to come to terms with. We'd love to blame people and we will find elements of it to blame on people. But the fundamental thing itself, most of it, isn't really anyone's fault. It's just kind of an accident.
0: You said you were refreshing the BBC webpage and that you haven't been creative, but you've been writing your Observer articles and I, I wonder if, we, we, we'll come on to talk about the truth, but I wonder if you like to sort of escape the truth in your articles or kind of skirt around on the edges because your recent article was why the scented candle is really getting on my wick. Yeah. And before that, the names Bond, second best James Bond, in a world racked by disease, it's lovely to debate which actor was almost as good as Connery. So yeah. I'm just wondering if that's your therapy is slightly um, evading the reality and the truth.
2: Yes, I think that's, um, that's absolutely fair comment. I very consciously thinking I don't want to write about it. And uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, other people are right. I mean, it has been covered, I felt. Um, so maybe I could write a bit about something else, something hopefully funny about Scented Candles or James Bond. Because, you know, I, what do I know about it? It's a sort of hugely complex mixture of viral science and epidemiology and sort of economic risk management and all that, you know. It's oh, God, it's it's why um,
0: why was what the scented candle piece is roughly to do with it? What, why were they uh, getting on your wig?
2: uh, (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely, I found it funny. The, there was some uh, a company, a scented candle company, uh, was bringing out a range to evoke that, well, to not evoke the smells, create the smells of things that we missed this summer. So there was one of, you know, a pub. Uh, there's one of, uh, of a, a, a festival. That was the one that got most attention because people had so missed all the wonderful festivals over the summer. I have to say that I would say that was the biggest boon about the whole coronavirus and all that wallowing around in the mud, shitting everywhere and taking drugs that was you put paid to but anyway some people enjoyed that was, you know it's a better way of monetizing farmland than trying to farm sheep i'm sure but um you know that that and uh, you know i can't remember what the other one was but i found it funny that it was the descriptions on the website of this scented candle were deliberately and very funny I th- and so i liked the company for making them but also i thought how bizarre when we're all in a situation caused by a disease that takes away people's sense of smell, that scented candles should be experiencing such a boom, which they are. The sales of scented candles uh, have gone up. The sales of very few things have gone up. You know, as we know, flour and yeast early on, loo roll, uh, hand sanitizer inevitably, but also scented candles. I thought that fact was a bit funny. But, you know, and and that gave me a, a moment's pause from just refreshing it again, and then, you know, what's going to be locked down now? What do we have to worry about now? Oh, God. Which I am failing to provide escapism to uh, people watching now by keeping sort of doom-ladenly referring
0: to it. We will move on from it. We'll move on yeah. from it, well, but we might not because I think, you know, you never know. It sort of pervades everything. But I'm gonna ask yeah. you about the title then, which mm. you didn't coin this phrase or, or you think you might've coined it, but someone else had already actually said it. Dishonesty is the second best policy. What, what do you mean by that?
2: What I, I mean to, is to be amusing about uh, the fact that lying and dishonesty is in the ascendant in our society, largely uh, thanks to the uh, the internet. And I thought of the—I swear blind—I thought of this phrase. And I sat there thinking, what would be a funny name for a book that reflects our times? And I wrote a list of things, and one of the things was I wrote "The Worsening," which refers to the you know potential worsening of our society that we talked about earlier. And then I I thought, and the publishers thought that's a bit of a downer. Come on. And uh, anyway, and I came up with this phrase, and I thought that's really funny. And then I thought, but you know what? It's quite possible someone else has thought of it and I googled it and yes George Carlin had already thought of it and he didn't name a book with this phrase but it was a an expression he coined so I thought I'd better own up to that but I continue to assert that I had never heard it and I thought of it separately and it's like <laughs> the you know like the wheel was originally invented in different continents at around the same time uh, you know I um, or calculus I, I see this as on the same level as the wheel and calculus. And, and in terms of uh, the history of the universe, it was basically simultaneously that we thought of it. Unfortunately, he thought of it, uh, it would be technically before me.
0: And it's, it's essentially about, as you say, that we're in a post-truth age and lots of mm. people say that. When you, What do you mean by post-truth?
2: Well, I, I think, what I mean is the odd thing about the internet is that it's very easy to represent... <laughs> any old tosh, as true. And uh, and it, it, it turns, and nobody saw this coming. We thought it was great. Now we can get our news everywhere and uh, be a democratization of information. That'll be lovely for everyone. And, you know, in some ways it does provide that. Wikipedia is pretty accurate. If you suddenly you want to know when Timmy Mallett was born, it's right there. And, and that doesn't tend to be uh, an area for dispute. So that truth is in the ascendant, the the birth year of Timmy Mallet, because there's not someone in in Vladimir Putin's administration sort of saying, let's make people in the West think Timmy Mallet is two years older than he is. So that kind of truth does come through the internet. But other truths, truths around which the stability of nations and uh, money can be uh, determined, uh, there is huge potential to warp them, to reduce uh, fact to opinion by plausibly asserting things that are provably untrue and the, we, we all know that the, the internet can do that we all know that you know that in political campaigns are undermined by adverts that come from no one's quite sure who uh, asserting things that that just aren't accurate like that i believe during the brexit uh referendum campaign there were adverts saying that uh the EU was going to admit Turkey as a member, and that would mean loads of people from Turkey coming here and taking all our jobs. Who knows that maybe the world would be at a place if Turkey was a member, and it might not be sliding off towards extremism. But nevertheless, that was not on the cards. It was just not true. But nevertheless, it was used as a reason to push Britain towards leaving the EU. And I'm sure the same has been done in contrary directions. So that sort of thing is something it turns out the internet is even better for than uh, than the delivery of, of of truth so that i think so, that's what everyone's banging on about really isn't it
0: <laughs> well so you say obviously everyone's banging on about it you say that so it's the internet that makes the difference then because as you point yeah. out everyone has always lied and you said we shouldn't get too excited about our own society as if it's done something while admittedly bad is devilishly inventive i mean you say like feeding Christians to lions or devising whiskey, lying is as old as the hills. So the only new thing is the sort of technology, lying with technology.
2: Yes, exactly. The technology makes it so much easier and it makes it so much easier to make the lies plausible. And it means, you know, that the dissemination of information used to be more difficult before the Internet. But by the same token, the dissemination of lies used to be more difficult. And ultimately, we had fewer, but therefore more trusted sources of information before the Internet. They weren't as easily or freely available, and that was a shame. But they were, there was more consensus around what they were. And so, you know, if something was in, uh, reported by the BBC, that was widely accepted uh, to be true. And there was a reason for that, and that was because it it almost invariably was. Now, I think the BBC's journalism is still pretty good, and that is still the case. But people's perception is that it might not be the case. It's become a lot easier to undermine people's perception of the uh, accuracy of various trusted news sources. And that reduces fact to opinion. I was well, the BBC says this, but at the same time, I heard President Trump say the BBC can be a bit dodgy. So maybe this other website saying exactly the opposite needs to be factored in. And I'm a questioning person. So I've got both things. Well, actually, that's not very useful if the fact at issue is pretty straightforwardly one thing and not the other thing. Like with the, the MMR jab, you know, that was just a, there was no need for that to be an issue at all. That's entirely the product of uh, circumstances in which questioning things has become, I suppose, has become a hobby for people who question things once, but then don't question their question. You know, that's the conspiracy theory, isn't it? The kind of thing, well, I think, I wrote one, uh, one of my pieces about people who think the world is flat. There are people who say, I question this orthodoxy that the world is round. Okay, you've questioned it. Now, if you look into it, you'll find out that the world is evidently round. But no, you've having questioned it, you've now stopped questioning everything and now are slavish, more slavishly believing that the world is flat than the people you previously despised for slavishly believing it was round. Because the thing is, if you really questioned it, you really got into it, you'd find out it was round. You know, like Christopher Columbus, he really got into it. He sailed and he discovered, you know, and that's, that's a bore lake. But... He discovered that it was round. And also those astronauts, again, going up into space, all the jogging before you get into it, and then the uncomfortable outfit. You know, I mean, we all wear masks on trains now, but in those days, transport was more comfortable, and, but not in the rocket, it isn't. And they got up there and they look out the window, oh, yes, it is round. But no, now, now people just go, well, I don't know, it looks sort of flat, doesn't it? Bumpy, but flat, I'm going to think that. And now, excuse me while I close my ears to all of the demonstrations that this is not true. Anyway, we, the internet has created uniquely fertile circumstances for that kind of lie, which the internet did not I- create that existed before it, but it's created the fertile circumstances for that kind of lie to grow.
1: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle, and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before.
0: Hey there. I'm going to come back to the internet again, actually, but I feel like I should stop and say that there's a part in the book where you say one of the most worrying things about the current malaise is that people often ask me, you, what the, what you think is going on. <laughs> I'm just a comedian who writes humorous newspaper, co- and humorous newspaper column. You're the wrong person to ask. And you think that perhaps people only asked you because they didn't get satisfactory answers from someone who actually knows. So now they're asking me out of desperation, next stop the dog, Why should I expect to be asked before the dog? Perhaps they're just trying to make conversation. I'm quite an awkward person to talk to after all. But you have written a whole book about what you think. So aside aside from that, then, why do you think we might turn to comedians for their take? Um, And do you think that sort of a satirist job or a comedian's job still works in this kind of post-truth, slightly bonkers age?
2: Well, I hope it does because, you know, that's what that is my chosen profession. So, you know, um, I'm aware that there is not the safest profession. It's not absolutely. I don't build shelter. You know, or, or grow food. So I'm relying on a relatively specialist economy, you know, where, where there is, you know, people will give money to the person that will uh, attempt to make them laugh rather than just to the people that make the food and and the buildings. So anyway, Uh, but I, I'm a comedian and my, my hope is to make people laugh, but I find the way I try and be funny and hopefully succeed sometimes in being funny is through talking about things And I tend to say what I feel about things or point out things that I think are ridiculous or daft or angering. And that's how I hope to be funny. But that ultimately I would say is that's the reason if there is one to read a book by me in that hopefully it will make you laugh. But yes, so I, I don't consider myself a wise person, but I do think there is something about the shape of humor that sometimes through an attempt to be funny, you find truth. Um, You find a good way of looking at things, and it's you know it's in terms of politics, it's quite difficult to make extremely sensible, noble, and prudent decisions seem ridiculous. So if your aim is to make things in the news seem funny and ridiculous then you tend to pick the low hanging fruit which are the policies that are self-serving and daft and self-contradictory etc cetera, etc cetera, rather than brilliant ideas i don't suppose there was a load of you know hilarious stuff about the foundation of the nhs and how daft that was what with all the people you know not dying anymore chortle chortle i imagine that that probably escaped the most scathing satirists because, you know, it seemed like a pretty humane development in our civilization. Um, so it's, you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't try and get jokes out of it, but I'd probably find other stuff was, uh, was easier going in that regard.
0: So actually, you feel like you have quite good fodder and, and quite a lot of potentially low-hanging fruit at the moment. And what what about this age now? We're quite a sensitive people call it a kind of hypersensitive age, and um, it's, it's cancel culture. Mm-hmm. How does sort of comedy navigate that?
2: It's difficult, I think. Then and, and everything, I think this is just something that happens now. And again, I will bang my internet blaming drum a bit. That uh, things jokes get taken out of context, and people don't get given credit for the intention behind the joke because I think one of the things that drives social media is is people getting offended by stuff, and some people probably knowingly enjoy that and other people probably unknowingly enjoy that. But either way, it's what drives the traffic and makes people keep saying things. And, and it, there's sometimes a feeling on social media of who is it today? Who's crossed the line today? And, and that's a difficult context in which to make a joke because apart from anything else, good jokes tend to approach lines and tend to, tend to play with areas of controversy. And at the moment, that can be dangerous, and you can have a horrible time online or potentially risk a serious disappearance of your employability if you make the wrong comic choice. And I don't like that development.
0: You said recently you were sort of contemplating making a joke on Twitter, and then you decided not to. Social media is an absolute Willy Wonka's chocolate factory for confected ray outrage.
2: Yes, exactly. And I and I think I mean I think I don't like social media and I'm moving away from it and I think but I think that's the, the problem with the broader context is you think of a joke and you think, Oh, well I think that's funny and then you think, but maybe someone would be offended for that reason and maybe someone would be offended for that reason. and then with any given joke, you can start thinking, Oh, it's just not worth it. I won't make that joke. And that the cumulative effect on public discourse of that happening case by case by case to millions and millions of potential jokes that people might make, I would say, is pretty depressing and will make us a less jolly and intellectually creative society. That, so that's my fear about it. But obviously, un- underlying it, there are you know, a lot of groups of people who have historically been treated terribly are saying we want to be treated with more respect. And that's a positive thing. It's it's it 's a complicated issue, and I think a thing that causes it that uh, makes it worse is that people are increasingly driven by their uh, maybe by social media maybe by what they choose to do online into very separate groups mm. of and you you everyone uh, sort of online it feels you have to sort of say what what sort of person are you? are you a proper Corbyn-supporting, proper left-wing person. And if you are, then you have to believe the full range of things. You can't diverge from that. You've got to have the full set, or you're not really a member of that group. Similarly, are you a proper you know, uh, Brexit-supporting person on the, you know, on the other end of politics? Again, you've got to have the full range of views. And you can sort of see how that happened in the run-up to getting Brexit done, which we haven't actually finally done, but one of the previous stages of finally getting it done you could see uh, during the Tory leadership election how all of the potential leaders were sort of vying to show how pro-Brexit they were to the point where, I think it was Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson were the last two, and Jeremy Hunt, who had previously, who had voted Remain in the referendum, was saying not only would he get Brexit done, but he he was totally willing, loving the idea of a no-deal Brexit. He'd go into that without... Uh, fear or favor, you know, that's, and, and that became the new thing to be a proper Brexit supporter, you suddenly had to be a proper no deal Brexit supporter, the people who supported Brexit, but wanted there to be some sort of orderly withdrawal. Oh, no, they're, they're lefties now. They're crypto communists who aren't really into it. And he sort of realized suddenly the most extreme version of the opinion becomes the only way of proving that you really hold the opinion. And suddenly Jeremy Hunter remained supporter, was saying things that were more extreme than anything Nigel Farage had said about it during the actual campaign. And that that had become the effect of the, political discourse had been to make everyone more and more extreme because if you showed a just a whisper of well maybe we should do some sort of deal people go no you're not really into brexit you just want to give into brussels don't you and and it's such a deeply unhealthy environment where you could someone can't go no i don't i actually do want to do brexit but i want there to be a deal please that became too sophisticated and nuanced a thing to express so that you know that's that's the product of of the kind of online tribes of opinion. You've got to to believe all these things or you're not really one of us. If you don't love Jeremy Corbyn, you're a Tory. The idea that there are any shades of opinion between that has become unacceptable sometimes online.
0: So that's why, I mean, it seems quite strong you're you're saying that, um, as I said at the beginning, it's basically... As, as disastrous a human invention as yeah. nuclear weapons. Yeah. It seems quite alarmist, the fact that the yeah. two compete as a genuine threat to humans. But is it this idea of divisive tribalism online and what you say is sort of as bad as the court of Versailles in the last day of the Bourbons? Is that the part that keeps you awake at night the most?
2: I th- yes, I think, I mean, I think when I say, it, make the comparison with nuclear weapons, I am aware that that would not have been the case if we had or have a full-blown nuclear war. I'm not saying that the internet is as bad as a nuclear war, but the where we are, what nuclear weapons have done so far is a very regrettable invention. I think most people agree, but you know, you science has to press forward and we've had wonderful things, uh, you know, uh, bulldog clips, those wheels on suitcases, uh, dishwashers. So it's, there's a lot of good, but sometimes, Oh no, this one's not a dishwasher. It's a nuclear weapon, bad day at the office. Um, nothing we can do now. But it has been contained. There have been, you know, there were two nuclear bombs dropped at the end of the war and tens of thousands of people were killed. Uh, But at the same time, at that point, uh, so many people were being killed by conventional bombs. It it was, um, you know, didn't seem as shocking as it might have done. But. Then it led to the, you know, arms race, Cold War thing. And you could make the argument maybe nuclear weapons gave us a fear of war, which is why there wasn't one. Who, who knows? If there were only conventional weapons, maybe the Soviet Union and the USA would have been uh, going at it hammer and tongs in the late 60s. You, you know, I don't know. But certainly the current carnage caused by nuclear weapons it is quantifiable. It's a regrettable invention, but it's not gone off the scale. It's not as, it's not been as bad for humanity as malaria, for example, whereas the Internet, the harm it's doing. It's slightly more subtle what it's doing, but it's changing the nature of our discourse. It's changing the nature of our inner cities. It's providing Uh, environments where people get bullied, where people get groomed, all that sort of the cumulative effect of that, if we're not careful, could certainly be looked back on by historians and saying, well, that's worse than nuclear weapons ever did. But the thing about nuclear weapons is that they were immediately, obviously awful. And so people were really careful. Whereas with the internet, people went, oh, great. It's so easy to get
0: pizza. But the thing is, there is nothing good about nuclear weapons necessarily. Whereas you you must concede that uh, the internet helps helps us communicate we couldn't be doing this event staying in you know people staying in touch it's not Armageddon it it
2: is not for me to say that people wouldn't add this event to the list of the internet's crimes but you know Uh, but yeah obviously the internet's done great things and I mean it about the pizzas and the taxis and the you know and uh, but we have this paradox don't we with that things like amazon you can buy anything immediately it turns up the next day it's so convenient but at the same time we want there to be shops in streets don't we that's how we want our the fabric of our society to be most of us i don't think many of us want to be i mean obviously we're under exceptional circumstances with the lockdown but in general we want to be able to have shops to pop to we want both we want there to be shops to pop to but also to be able to get things conveniently the next day from amazon but at the moment both is a difficult thing to manage economically without, you know, I don't know what, subsidy of the high street. But either way, if all of our, the centers of our cities are you know, completely uh, dead and eaten out with empty shop fronts and everything, that, that's not really what anyone wants. But we create it by, you know, every time it's easy to get batteries from Amazon.
0: Well, you also have sympathy in the book with the, who you call the generation of obsessive photo takers, the selfie generation who want to kind of diarize every waking moment. Otherwise, it mm. doesn't really exist. And, and you say we should kind of leave them alone, or if that's well, us.
2: Well, well I, what I find slightly odd is that, I mean, I try not to be obsessed with my phone, but yet sometimes I'm obsessed with my phone. But, and obviously, the times I'm consciously trying not to be obsessed with my phone basically should come under the heading of time you are obsessed with your phone. You, you know, it's, it's phone thinking time. And I think there are sometimes cases where some people are quite happily film taking pictures of an experience on a holiday at a, you know, tourist site or whatever. And other people are looking at them going, Oh, why can't you just enjoy it? Why do you have to take pictures of it? In that instance, the people taking pictures are more unself-consciously enjoying the experience than the people who also aren't really looking at the amazing view or the fireworks or whatever but are just looking at the people who are taking pictures of it and despising them. So I think if you're not careful you can just in taking issue with how someone else chooses to enjoy something you you are hypocritically also not unself-consciously enjoying it yourself.
0: So there are there are other things that you well, not blame. You say yourself, we're not going to blame, but the internet is the main, is the main problem here. Um, but there's a, there's a chapter in your book you call Titans of the 21st Century. You say, if, to be fair, if we don't like how history is going, it's up to us to change it. A bad workman blames his tools. This chapter is about those tools. And then you go on to talk about various politicians, David Cameron, Amber Rudd, Theresa May, and I'm going to scroll past those um, they're still obviously with us but not necessarily as, uh, as as relevant as Boris who you then get to and I, I think it's probably quite clear that you don't adore Boris and specifically you find very worrying this idea that he genuinely thinks he is um, Winston Churchill. <laughs> I'm just wondering why that worries you but also do you find anything Churchillian about the Boris that we've seen lately with his kind of talk of firepower and gathering um, together as a nation?
2: I I think it's, I mean, there is basically, but obviously Boris Johnson's an interesting person because he is sort of doesn't seem so much in the current context, but he was historically quite entertaining. You know, and he was, you hosted Have I Got News For You? And he was funny and he was, and they can do a nice turn of phrase and that sort of thing. He has entertainment skills. He had, he would have a very viable career in show business and I would have nothing against his forging that career. It's 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 uh, aspiration to be prime minister that I have a problem with, but the, the thing about the, the Winston Churchill thing, I actually found it almost reassuring the thought that he really thought he was like Churchill because I found in that a vanity that was for a moment real and human and unselfconscious, that that I found ridiculous because you know why how you know who could be so pompous is to take the great political hero of the old political movement from a time of, uh, of sort of threat and momentousness unlike our own and think, yeah, I'm like that. I mean, you, you have to be so vain and self-important to do that. But also, there's the vulnerability to how inaccurate he is in that idea. And so, and because there was something that there is, if you're an, a political opponent of Boris Johnson, as I, you know, am, There can be something very sinister about the way he capered towards the centre of power with his fuzzy hair and his, you know, suddenly being pro Brexit and his, you know, his. And you sort of go, it's it's like a, it's it's like the terrifying figure of a clown who turns out to be a serial killer. You know that, that there's 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 an a sort of chilling quality to that but then suddenly when you sort of realize he's sort of going everyone aren't i like winston churchill look i've written a book about winston churchill which subtly implies that i may share some of his qualities don't you agree and in that there's a childish vanity to it that that i found vulnerable and i and therefore made him a less frightening and b i thought more likely to fail politically and uh, but he hasn't failed politically he's got the job he wanted uh, you know, it's not necessarily doing it brilliantly, but, um, but at the same time, I, you know, I have to accept he's not doing it brilliantly under exceptional circumstances that I, I you know, I, I can't say I'm sure anyone would do that brilliantly with.
0: What, why, I'm intrigued, did, did Donald Trump not make it onto your list? I mean, he's, perhaps you feel he's honest in an age of... Says I,
2: it is. It, well, it was... I'm less inclined to write about Donald Trump because I don't feel I know enough about american politics so and i'm i therefore feel that my speculations and my opinion is uh, less valid i suppose i think i am i am allowed to bang on and moan about british politics because this is a country i live in and i have to deal with the consequences of what happens here politically I, Who's president of america is primarily the business of the american electorate and uh, you know and so I, i'm less inclined to weigh in and again it's not like no one's writing about him so it's you know that obviously as anyone would know from my uh, general internet profile I'm not a fan of Donald Trump and I, th- I think he you know is, is a sort of monstrous leader and I dearly hope he loses the election uh, this year but uh, uh, I'm you know <laughs> but also I think it's become increasingly important in these terrible times to you know emotionally invest in other things than your hopes for sanity to prevail in the political arena. But you're something, you know, But I didn't consciously omit him because I think he's great. Um, but I, but I th- and also, i tell you another thing about Donald Trump is I feel that the people on the left and center pointing out the evident and absurd failings of Donald Trump only fuel his success because I think a lot of the people who support him and vote for him do so primarily to annoy the very people who are most annoyed by him. And so those people expressing their annoyance is just, it, you know, essentially justifies the act of voting for him. He, people vote for him as an act of protest against a political structure that they feel no longer represents them or, or has their interests at heart. And there is legitimacy within that urge Obviously, it's an act of wanton and futile destruction to bring such a man to power. But the urges that create that the destructive move aren't necessarily illegitimate entirely. And I do feel going that uh, affluent centre lefties, particularly ones with British accents, going, oh, he's awful, he's awful, he's just such an idiot and and he doesn't care about anyone and he's so orange, it just makes them go, yeah, well, I'm going to vote for him again because he's annoyed the likes of you and that's something.
0: Um, I'm going to have to reluctantly uh, hand over to, to audience questions, but I just want to finish just, just two points. It feels from the book that actually progress in in general tell me if I'm wrong scares you change scares me. I mean you say um I don't like change yeah. I instinctively don't like change uh, you know emotionally we know whether we're in the kind of ooh new or Ugh, new camp and you're very much in the kind of ah do you mm. think that's what st- sort of really is kind of fueling all your worries and fears it's why you like old paintings old art you're a bit frightened of uh, modern art and minimalist design or anything anything new is there an exception to that rule? Is that really what underlies all of this
2: possibly i mean yeah i can 't immediately think of an exception to that rule, and I should add to that sort of list of reasons to dismiss my views as irrational that i'm also forty six so these feelings have have come you know have reached their uh, fruition at a time when i 've Uh, past the likely midpoint of my life and so the you know the fact that I'm now definitely uh, middle-aged in general um, more frightened uh, by change than things staying the same uh, probably add to my uh, likelihood to draw negative conclusions about technological developments so yes But (laughs) but I can only be me other people have to analyze me I can't do it at the same time as being me so, yeah, that's, that's the full set of things. So there's a certain, inevitably, I would say that. But then, as I've said in an, another column, I think, it's, that's one of the most unpleasant and reductive phrases to say about someone. Oh, you would say that. Because everything anyone ever says, they, by definition, would say and just have. So you can always shut someone, oh, you would say that you, with the, the contemptibleness of you. You've come up with the most predictable thing. One of the things that you would say you have just said. Well, yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not true.
0: In your humble opinion, somebody says, which poses a greater threat to civilization, nuclear war or climate change? We're sticking with the positive questions. The optimal.
1: Oh. <laughs> yes. Uh,
2: well, I, I think I, I would say at the moment, most people would think climate change is a bigger threat than nuclear war. But obviously, nuclear war—you know—people aren't mentioning nuclear war as a threat much at the moment. They did a lot more in the '80s, but I don't know. Maybe there's someone, you know, in some bunker somewhere in Russia who's accidentally going to sit down on the button and then it's all over. But um, it doesn't seem like that is one of the most uh, pressing threats at the moment. Whereas climate change is obviously a terrifying prospect and. And I, I, like most people, I'm sort of caught between thinking, "Oh, what can I do? What can I do?" And for my own sanity, I have to just recycle things and try not to think about this constantly because it's not going to help, uh, it, it, you know, the situation. If if we all go mad with despair.
0: So, um, Mark, I'm glad for your question, because I, I did say at the beginning that our, our How To Academy discussions are normally about how to make things better, that this one might <laughs> not be. But Mark um, does ask, how would you suggest we make society better?
2: Uh, well, I I have a, got a few thoughts, but, uh, you know, I don't know if it would, um, you know, I, I don't know if this will work. But um, and. You know, and I and I would say before I, you know, you start saying, well, that won't work. That's not a good idea. I, would, I say I, I do think it is legitimate to carp from the sidelines, and you know that is, you know, pointing out problems is is one of the things that needs to be done, and or solving them is another thing that needs to be done. But it doesn't have to be the same people. And that, you know, um, I always feel when I spot a leak in a pipe and then call the plumber, I've done, di- you know, I've diagnosed the problem, haven't I? And then he treats the problem physician and surgeon. But I, my feeling is, I mean, the, in, the issue of, uh, you know, I would love to see things taxed according to how much carbon was admitted in their manufacture. I think that would be a great way of equating environmental costs with financial costs, which that could, if, if we got into that habit, we could, um, we could massively reduce the threat of climate change without having to ditch capitalism. I'm not saying I love capitalism, but it does feel like it's a difficult system to shift So there's that. I think in Britain, and I really think this, and this might be something I'm humorously bang on on about, even on a platform one day, because I really think this is uh, pressing. We've got to have proportional representation. We've got to stop electing governments uh, with 42% of the electorate, you know, at most. And 42%, not of the electorate, 42% of the people who turn up. That's what it takes to get your parliamentary majority in the House of Commons. And so uh, so we have this ridiculous system where you know in order to win an election, one of the two main parties has to cross the line into the early 40 percent, but that leaves the middle utterly unrepresented and it leaves you know I, 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 a lot of my opinions align with the, the liberal Democrats. I'm not saying they've necessarily uh, played a brilliant game in recent years, but they have not a chance of getting their ideas into power the time they did have a bit of a chance they they didn't do very well with that. But, but that was because they were within a system where they're, they realized that their holding the balance of power was fleeting. So I, I'm, it's, it's boring and it's dry, but if 43% of the electorate vote conservative, 43% of the MPs in the House of Commons should be Tory MPs, not 70%. And and it would be fine. They say, oh, no, it'll be like Italy. We'll have a thousand governments a week. Well, firstly, Italy is nice. And secondly, there are lots of countries that have proportional representation that have perfectly stable governments. And there is no reason why we couldn't be one of them. But it means at the moment our main parties are coalitions, but they're coalitions behind closed doors. We should make coalitions openly in the sunlight.
0: But you, you, you. This is in your manifesto in the book, and you're very passionate about it. Will you ever? Can we see? Can you stand and then try and put this into actual?
2: I I know because what I want to do, and uh, and it might not seem like it after the last two minutes of ranting. I like the thing I like most is comedy. I think trying to be funny is that that's that's the. I think it's it's the art form that most interests me. It's a. I think it's the most. Noble thing to try and do with your life, if if you've uh, got an inclination for it, and I think it creates joy, and I love doing it, and that's what I I want to do. I want o- other people to um, make there be proportional representation, but my having pointed out that it should be done, you know, and that that's I know but maybe that's an unreasonable expectation, but I you know I don't think I have a right because of political acumen to prominence. If I've got a right to prominence, it's because I've sometimes made people laugh and I've got to keep doing that or I should disappear from people's screens. So now I feel I need to tell a joke urgently and I can't think of one.
0: Oh, well, you'll have to, okay, well, you'll have to, maybe you can turn this next answer, but it's possibly not. Um, Aaron asks, does optimism in itself scare you?
2: Oh, no, that's interesting. He's trying to get into my head. Um, uh, No, it doesn't actually. Uh, I, and I and I'm I'm a much more optimistic person than than this makes me seem. I'm I'm forever, say you know I'm 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 forever getting cross with myself for, for being optimistic and then it didn't work out. I think part of the reasons I write in the way I do is because I think it's a way of being a bit funny, uh, and also I sort of want to get the I, get there first to express what might go wrong. Because in my heart, I, I, what I feel is, surely it'll all be fine. That, that's, you know, that's where I, I see myself as an optimist. I see myself as, surely it'll be fine. The, the planet won't become uninhabitable. It never has before. It'll be fine. We'll work it out. It'll be but th- at the moment, a lot of those it'll be fine haven't necessarily played out brilliantly. But I, I see myself as an optimist. I'm not scared of optimism. I want to be able to be optimistic and feel like, oh, yeah, it's going to work out. I'm, I remember during the Brexit thing, and was, I'm sorry to talk about Brexit because we're sick of it. Um, and obviously I was against Brexit, as um, uh, as I have made clear. And I don't mean to be, you know, if, if, you, if you love Brexit, if you wanted Brexit, then good luck to you. I'm, but I didn't. And people kept asking me, you, you know, people I hung out with who also didn't want it, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? And I realised what I was, I couldn't, I'd say, well, I think maybe there'll be a second referendum because people will decide it's about order. And I realised I wasn't saying, I wasn't predicting, I was, I was just voicing optimism. I, I couldn't separate my expectations and fears from my hopes. Um, so I would say, it may not seem like it, but I am an optimist. I'm a battered optimist.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I think you called Brexit... Sna- it was a chapter about snapshots of a festering self-inflicted wound. I remember talking to you before about um, it was hard to discern what you thought of Brexit. from <laughs> um, Someone says, you're a breath of fresh air always. What do you do to calm down when trying humour isn't enough to sort of calm you?
2: Oh, well, that's... Um, I, I, I mean, I find, uh, like most people, a nap can help. Uh, watching uh, television can help overeating can help uh, there's no doubt that alcohol can sometimes help um but but also I, I think i think that's the you know the thing i i would want to emphasize and i hope people will buy the book because i do think it's funny and i think i i i find i love watching comedy to relax but also i if i've written something and i think that's funny that's i I, I think that that's very satisfying. That's what I love to do in the way I think some, you know, a craftsman might like making a, you know, a, a cabinet. That's, I I feel like, oh, that's good. That was a thing. It didn't exist and now it does. So that that's very relaxing. That's very, because it's, tr- it's tricky to be funny. So you have to concentrate when you're writing something. And then when you think it's come right, it's very restful.
0: Someone asked if there's a topic... Any topic at all that's off limits to you?
2: Oh, I mean, practically speaking, there are many topics I absolutely wouldn't touch at the moment. The list goes longer and longer because there are some things by mentioning at all at the moment that at least half of the people you're speaking to would close off and, and go, oh, hang on. What are you saying? What are you implying? What you know? So I think in practice, if you want to keep amusing people and you want to keep people listening, there are topics you would only broach um, if you really i don't know if if you if if you you couldn't bear not to express them so but yeah there are many things for, as i say for practical reasons i don't think that there is there are topics that you can't make jokes about morally and about which perfectly um, sort of morally sound yet edgy inventive uh twisted jokes could be made about um so i i absolutely hold by the you can make jokes about anything. There's not like a subject that's so serious and awful that it may, that humour may not go near it because humour is not a trivial thing. But, uh, but you know, I, I live in the world as it is now and uh, you know, I, to a certain extent want a quiet life. So there are things that i just won't bang on about at the moment. Um, and you know, that's, that's the measure of me.
0: I, I like this question. Someone asks whether or what has been your worst new habit developed during the lockdown?
2: Um, that's, that is an interesting, I actually, I think, I, I, I think sleeping in the afternoons, I think that's, I, I, am, I am 46, which is, I could be younger, but I think it's a bit early for naps, really. Uh, and I've done a lot of sleeping in the afternoons. And that's, you know, and I would say that actually is quite a good stress reliever it can be difficult to get to sleep if you're stressed, but if you manage it, you know, you might have some weird dreams, but you, you know, you you can never be quite as stressed asleep as you are awake.
0: Okay. I've just time for just a, um, a couple more. You do talk quite a lot about, you know, media ownership. Someone says, how do you feel about the structure of media ownership? Does it give some very opinionated billionaires too much influence on our lives? (laughs)
2: Yes well I I think uh, opinionated billionaires will always have more influence than they should and certainly that there is definitely you know the, the newspapers in Britain are there aren't very many of them really and they're not owned by very many people and the political balance of them is not the down the center by any means it's to the right but at the same time you know, I, I have a fondness for newspapers and they've never been less relevant. I, I think we live in a slightly odd time where we're very conscious that, the, you know, that much of the press is uh, leaning to the right and that makes us demonize the press as a thing. But actually, its, it's power is inexorably waning and that won't, we won't necessarily be pleased about that because the things that might replace the Daily Mail might be just as rabid, but not necessarily as fact-checked. Because the truth is about the newspapers is that they don't often directly lie. They misrepresent, but they can't really get away with libel. uh, Very often. Uh, It's not to say never. And so I I think we will miss the existence of newspapers. I wish there were more centrist and and left-wing ones that um, seem to still be in business. The reason that the billionaires, the you know that the right-wing ones are the ones that seem to survive, is because the billionaires are subsidising them, and there aren't left-wing organisations subsidising left-wing newspapers because none of them are actually making money at the moment. They're still influential. Politicians are still aware of them. People at the BBC are very much aware of what's in the press. But then they're of, you know, people in power are of that generation, my generation and older in general. Um, I think younger people see the the old style press as less and less relevant and its power will wane. And I'm not sure that whatever replaces it will necessarily be better.
0: OK, I'm going to give you an option. Would, would you like your last question to be about superpowers or about um, lying and post-truth? I've got time for one more.
2: Oh well, I've probably banged on enough about lying in post. But I worry about the superpower when they're going to ask me what superpower. If you had a superpower, what superpower would it be, or something? I won't be able to think of anything. Well, they is that, is it, that it.
0: Well, it says that they think the ability to power nap should be considered a mild superpower. They wish they yeah. could. If you could choose yours, what would you pick? You chose. Oh, it?
2: that's interesting. It's Harold Wilsons had had that. He said Harold Wilson said anyone who can't immediately go to sleep for twenty minutes under any circumstances isn't properly tired. Um, And I, you know, I thought, you know, (laughs) fair play. But the thing about super, if I had a superpower, I mean, anyone would choose the same superpower, wouldn't they? And it's not an interesting answer. It wouldn't be, I'd choose the power to be uh, a sarcasm ray, or I'd choose the power to uh, flying. We'd fly like Superman. I'd love to be able to fly. (laughs) I mean, that's just it. I want to fly. Is that uh, too much to ask? <laughs> just to be able to fly, not with wings, not in an aeroplane, just whew, shoot up. Can you imagine if I suddenly did that? I just, it would be I... the end of my career, though. I wouldn't be able to go on panel shows and just be sarcastic. They'd sort of go, he's the one, he can fly, that one. He got was easier, I can see why he's on this show. He's just here because he can fly. I wouldn't get credit for any thought I ever had. It would ruin my career. That would be the irony of it that I wouldn't I wouldn't you know try and do the stand up tour. Like, okay I've got this great material about dish dishwashers. Never mind fly around the room. <laughs>
0: David, I, well I wish of course that you could just do that to, to end this discussion it would be the a bit, bit like um, Gordon Brown just pushing his laptop down the other day you could just leave us by flying off but sadly <laughs> you haven't managed to find that yet thank you so yeah. much for joining us thank you to everyone who signed in um, it's, sorry that we can't carry on longer but thank you very very much for thank joining
2: you us. for talking <laughs> to me and, and listening and um, have a lovely evening everyone
1: this week's show starred David Mitchell and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by me and edited by John Daugherty. We're hosting guests like David almost every night online. And after months of hard work, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of How Plus, our new digital subscription service giving you free access to all our upcoming live streams and the video archive of everything we've recorded so far. This podcast remains free, of course, but if you want to go deeper into our world of big ideas, find out more at howtoacademy.com. I'm Vas Thanks for listening.